Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 4 of Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about um, Ernst von Rath, the Nazi diplomat. Who are we talking about today, Ben? Well, uh, as always, I'm going to start with a story. Um, we're remaining this week in the world of the Prussian elite and the Prussian upper classes, but we're turning the clock back now to November of 1908, and we're at the Donauischingen Castle in the Black Forest, which is one of Kaiser Wilhelm II's country retreats. The reign of Wilhelm I, under whose stern leadership the Hohenzollern Royal House of Prussia had unified all of the formerly separate lands of Germany in 1870, had come to an end 20 years earlier, and he was replaced by the far less impressive Wilhelm II, his grandson, who became uh, the emperor after the 99-day brief sickly reign of Frederick III. Tactless and blunt, Wilhelm II embarked on an aggressive colonial project and alienated former allies, including Otto von Bismarck, who he fired in 1890. Nevertheless, he loved retreating to his country estate where he could relax and enjoy an evening's entertainment with generals. On this November evening, Dietrich Graf von hülsen Hesela, chief of the German imperial military cabinet, decided to put on a little show. To strains of music piped in by a military band, the good general danced into the room in a pink tutu and ballerina slippers, plieing and jeteing around the room to the delight <laughs> of the entire audience. As if in an allegory about flying too close to the sun, or in this case, flying too close to the spotlight, at the end of the performance, dancing in a more and more frenzied fashion, jumping and blowing kisses and pirouetting as if possessed by the red shoes themselves, he dropped dead of a heart attack. W- was he still in the tutu? He was still in the tutu. <laughs> I feel like the, um, the exploits of the ruling class never really change. They don't. And so you can imagine that a general dropping dead in drag would be immediate grist for the scandalmonger's mills, especially at the beginning of a 20th century that was increasingly dominated by mass media. Now, this particular scandal was covered up. The good count was smuggled out of the castle before his circumstances of his death could be discovered. But the only reason this scandal was covered up so assiduously was because there was an already raging other scandal about homosexual behavior at the highest levels of the Kaiser's court, a scandal that Husen Hazeler was actively working to cover up when he decided to do a little drag ballet, a scandal that would drag on in the press for years, that would make and break careers in journalism, sexology, and the court itself, as it helped define both Imperial Germany's relationship to masculinity and homosexuality as well as create a public furor that helped launch the homosexual emancipation movements, which became famous in the Weimar Republic after the First World War and the Revolution of 1918, that scandal being the Eulenburg Affair. And so today's subject is Philip Prince of Eulenburg, the man for whom that affair was named, but is also the broader set of people, scandals, and events that surrounded this German and also global public explosion of conversation and debate around homosexuality. Philip was, uh, quite simply, Kaiser Wilhelm II's best friend, a friend who, according to the historian John Rill in his monograph, The Kaiser and His Court, quote, acted as a crisis manager for the Prussian-German monarchy during Wilhelm II's first years of rule before suffering destruction at the hands of a bourgeois liberal imperialist generation of journalists who sought to, 
rather than Eulenburg's desire to preserve the delicate balance of hereditary rule and liberal modernization, instead supersede the absolutist monarchy and invest more power in the hands of industry and business elites. So, 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 so their thing is that like he was unfairly taken down because uh, by by those who always wished for republicanism. Well, we'll see. Um, I, I don't think it's that he thinks he's unfairly taken down, but that behind all of these conflicts about homosexual behavior, there's also this conflict about the appropriate role and relationship between a king and his court. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, in the coming sort of moments of the show um, as we talk about some of the Kulturkampf stuff that we spoke a little bit about in uh, last week's show as well. So Oldenburg was born to an ancient aristocratic family in Prussia in 1847. And that's obviously a year before that 1848 wave of revolts threatened monarchy across Germany before ultimately failing. His family was not particularly rich, but it was involved in a broad array of the military, political, and cultural conflicts of the German-speaking world in the 19th century. When he was 15, his brother was made Bismarck's minister of the interior. When he was 19, he had to flee school in Dresden because of the Austro-Prussian War. During his 20s, he lived through the main years of the Kulturkampf, those culture wars, conflict in Prussia between Prussia's Protestant government and the Roman Catholic Church. The kind of thing that was in Prussia considered the liberal side of that conflict, um, the side that Eulenburg and the Prussian monarchs found themselves on, is very different than what we might understand a liberal late 19th century position to be in the context of English or American history, which is history with which our listeners may be more familiar. Rail writes, uh, quote, Eulenburg's political vision was permanently dominated by the fear that the newly united Protestant Reich could disintegrate, as well as by the conviction that only the hegemony of Prussia, underpinned by the executive authority and military command power of the King of Prussia, unfettered by any form of parliamentary control, could guarantee the continued existence of this new German Reich in the face of the alliance of its numerous internal and external enemies. This was a liberalism descended from those Junkers or Junghers of 18th century Prussia, the cabbage Junkers, Marx called them, brutish nobles ruling over enormous, not particularly productive estates they saw as populated by the lesser races of Slavs. For this reason, Rail points out, Eulenburg was attracted to race pseudoscience, He avidly read the racist anti-Semite Houston Stuart Chamberlain, one of the crucial theorists for the Nazi ideologues, and Arthur de Gobineau, whose writings helped legitimize scientific racist theory, and whose most famous work is called An Essay on the Inequality of the Human Races, which justifies both white domination over black and brown people, as well as aristocratic domination over the common man, using the same hierarchies of innate superiority. In their 2001 monograph, Anthropology and Antihumanism in Imperial Germany, the historian Andy Zimmerman makes a series of arguments about the specific way that the imperialist pseudo-liberalism of the Prussian Protestants served as a kind of agar in which imperialist racism could grow like so many bacteria. Anthropology being conducted in Germany's new colonies placed the indigenous residents of those colonies, referred to as nature people, without history, into the ongoing Kulturkampf debate about the role and meaning of culture itself, in which the idea of the definition of culture was the possession and analysis of history. Anthropology came to be seen as more scientific and superior to history as a science, with the production of knowledge about people without history a key ingredient in the development of the superior home culture. So these sort of eugenics arguments that were happening in Germany were not just uh, emerging from like a sort of more niche um, 
academic sort of, uh, I don't know, um, anthropological and um, scientific world, but it was it was like firmly embedded in the sort of arguments that were being made by the supporters of the monarchy. Absolutely. And there was a, the kinds of people who we might think of in, for example, 19th century England as being people who would be advocating for less monarchical and more parliamentary control, right? You know, debating clubs of um, bourgeois liberal people who are publishing little magazines, etc. Yeah. Um, a far greater number of those in Germany are, and I think it's partially because of the, how recent the reunification was, still really committed to absolutist monarchy as a political project. Um, and so they see absolutist monarchy as the engine of liberalism and modernization in this weird way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, once it doesn't make sense. It's, 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 an, it's an inane politics, but you know, it, it makes sense that they thought it. So there are a lot of things that are potentially quite dangerous in this um, ideological and intellectual soup. And one ingredient with particularly gay overtones that we're about to add to it is, of course, a deep love for Wagner. Eulenberg and Wilhelm II bonded young partially over their admiration for the composer's work. To quote Alex Ross in his magisterial book, Wagnerism, quote, the young Wilhelm seemed besotted with Wagner, delighting in the opera's exterior splendors, their brassy fanfares and medieval decor. He outfitted his automobile with a horn that played the thunder motif from Das Rheingold. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> He first visited Bayreuth in 1886 in the company of Eulenburg and came away convinced that the festival was of national importance. Indeed, he was the one who proposed that it could become an annual event so that its ennobling effect could spread. So the Bayreuth visit was one of the first shared experiences of the young friends, who had met earlier that year on a hunting trip in Prekelwitz in Prussia. Eulenburg was 12 years older than the young prince. And this befriending of Wilhelm II, and thus the re-entry into politics at the highest ranks, came after a rather snake-like career path for the young Eulenburg. After completing his undergraduate studies in 1869, he served in the Franco-Prussian War before studying law in Leipzig. In 1875, he graduated with a doctorate in law and traveled to Stockholm to marry the Swedish cousin Augusta Sandals. Like all heterosexuals, they honeymooned in Italy and began to have children. Philip seems to have devoted on his children while, uh, big shock here, treating Augusta with some deal of aloofness and distance. After a series of events in 1881 that included the illness and death of his brother, an affair between a friend of his and the Princess Elizabeth, and the tragic death of his young daughter Astrid, he withdrew from the civil service and began to devote himself to artistic pursuits, writing a series of Nordic ballads called things like Spring Powers, Fairy Tales of Freedom, and old Nordic lullaby. Fairy tales of freedom, is it? Fairy tales of freedom. And uh, Eulenberg had been close to the Wagners ever since his mother played four hands with Cosima Wagner, who at this point was still married to Hans von Bülow in his youth. And so um, before he joined the civil service, he had seemed to have been headed for a writing career. Even after Wilhelm II ended up pressing him back into state service, his letters reveal conflict between his desire to be artistic and creative and his state duties. And he seems to have identified state service with daddy and artistic creation and his inner self with mummy. Some things never change. Um, here's an example. This is quoted by John Royal in his book, The Kaiser and His Court. Um, Eulenberg wrote of his father, quote, 
He was suffused with the prosaic ethos of Prussia, and inevitably he sought to steer me in a similar direction when so much imagination lay dormant in my imagination. In the same memoir, he wrote of his mother, quote, My mother, whom I deeply adored, the ideal figure who filled my whole being with her boundless love, fired my inspiration. Music, painting, poetry occupied her thoughts, and she practiced the arts with talent and understanding, and they took full possession of me as well. Okay. Gay. So, <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's certainly it is a type, no. Oh, it's a real type. Um, takes one to know one. Um, Sorry, does, does the type emerge at that point, do you reckon? Well, I mean, this is the, the Eulenberg affair, as we will see later, is part of how this type emerges. And this kind of evidence becomes used to define homosexuality in a way that helps create the reason why we think of this type as being particularly gay. We'll talk yeah, about that later. So now let's pause for a minute and go back and talk a bit about Kaiser Wilhelm II himself. He suffered organ damage at birth from having been born in the breech position, which at this time left 98% of babies dead at birth because they would be suffocated. So his left arm was 15 centimeters shorter than his right and never achieved uh, typical arm function. Uh, and it's suspected he may have suffered brain damage and was born seemingly dead before he came to life. His mother at the time was only 18, the Princess Royal Vicky, who was the first child of Queen Victoria, and she had drifted out of consciousness on chloroform for 10 hours of painful labor, during which doctors had to operate under a floor-length flannel skirt to ensure propriety. Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 an often quoted fact, but I think in the First World War, the leaders of um, the King of England, the King of Germany, and the Tsar of Russia were all cousins. They were. And uh, Princess Royal Vicky, you know, if she had been a man uh, as the first child of Queen Victoria, she would have been the King of England. She wasn't. So this became yeah. her only job. And if you think about the extent to which it was the job of a woman of that position at that time to produce a healthy heir, a healthy male heir, she had in some weird sense failed, right? not failed as we would understand it now or failed in any by any reasonable standard of anything. Uh, yeah. None of this is anyone's fault and none of this even needs end up making someone have make, making someone have a worse life except for the discrimination that you face. But at this time you have someone who is both from birth heir to the throne and also a sickly child who's a person living with disabilities which are not disabilities severe enough to remove him from the royal line but are still disabilities severe enough to engender various kinds of mistreatment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an irony um, that, that the very sort of um, society and that uh, the, the bodies that are creating this, um, this eugenics sort of uh, idea of this class of born rulers who are physically and mentally superior um, would, would uh, sort of be, yeah, be in, in this, position but but also it's an irony that because of the nature of the european royalty that um that certain hereditary diseases are, are very strong because of the um the very small pool of people from which they were um they were choosing to reproduce oh for sure so the young wilhelm was regularly given shock treatment and stretched on leather straps by quack doctors promising to restore his body to quote unquote normalcy and he was educated by dour Calvinists. Jesus, horrific. 
really horrific. And so Rail writes, when he came to the throne at the age of 29, Wilhelm could use the whole apparatus of army, navy, and state, and the whole arena of world politics to prove his worth. So as soon as Wilhelm took the throne in 1888, he began to promote his great friend Eulenburg. Eulenburg was named Prussian envoy in Munich against the wishes of Bismarck, who wrote, quote, he is amiable, but politically he has little sense of what is important and what is not. He allows himself to be influenced by carping drama. Now, that's one of the more elaborate euphemisms for faggot I've ever heard, and I've heard a few. <laughs> so Eulenburg became obsessed with the idea that the Prussian-German government would always be dependent on moderate conservative governments without which any government would become too unstable and fall, and thus risk losing both Catholic Bavaria and the alliance with Austria to the other Catholic countries of Europe. This idea that Germany must be governed from the center-right out, and that any alternatives to that center-right government are de facto illegitimate, survives in German political culture to this day and held wide sway in that era. Eulenburg became associated with Friedrich von Holstein, a high-powered civil service in the foreign office, and began to put his, quote, boundless love for the Kaiser into service, and to build the alliance between himself and Holstein into a power center to rival Bismarck. After a series of missteps and conflicts with the new emperor, Bismarck was roused from bed in the morning of March 15, 1890, and told that his resignation was expected. The rapidly expanding and industrializing and confident new Germany was concealing a wretched government, as we can see from this story of how Bismarck was fired a government that was governed more by rumor and personal relationships than anything resembling functional politics. It became Eulenburg's job to be the Kaiser's manager among all the court intrigue, to interface between the new chancellor, General Leo von Caprivi, and industrialists and other power bases who were worried about Caprivi's liberalism. To do this, Eulenburg relied upon a form informal group of friends and close associates known as the Liebenberg Roundtable, named after the title of Eulenburg's country estate. Now, this kind of position brings enormous influence, but can also generate enormous resentment. The roundtable became, in the words of the historian Robert Beachy, quote, despised and resented. Many political observers referred to the group as a camarilla, a cadre of friends who used their position at court to exercise private political power. These camarilla members abused their friendship to gain positions for themselves, and even worse, to influence the Kaiser's views on German foreign policy, end quote. This Camarillo would decide that it was time for Caprivi to depart. This was a decision made at the Liebenberg Villa and helped name his successor, get ready for the name, Prince Schlodwig von Hohenlohe Schillingfürst. <laughs> That's spelled C-H-L-O-D-W-I-G. Schlodwig or Schlodwig. Von Schillingfürst. Von Hohenlohe Schillingfürst. Such a beautiful language. It really is. Uh, the word for butterfly is Schmetterling. In 1900, roundtable member and close Eulenburg friend Bernard von Bülow would himself be named chancellor. And so liberal and militaristic agitators disliked the personalization of politics that was embodied by this Camarilla, the way that it smacked of absolutism and a style of political decision making that they thought belonged to the past and not to the future. These observers also hated what they thought was Eulenburg's pacifism and his seeming support for closer alliances with the French. Now, at this time, Eulenburg himself is remaining the devoted racist he would always be. In one letter to his mother, he praised a painting the Kaiser had commissioned based on a nightmare that he had had about an Asian invasion of Europe, a piece of disgusting propaganda known as the Yellow Peril, 
which depicted a flaming Buddha statue and a dragon threatening Europe. Quote, the Kaiser has given me a magnificent engraving of the wonderful allegorical picture executed by Professor Knackfuss from his Imperial Majesty's sketch. The peoples of Europe are represented as female figures, as called upon by St. Michael to defend the cross against unbelief, heathenism, etc. You will like it. It is a beautiful idea in a beautiful form. He at this time was still being influenced by Gobineau, whose racist theories he had introduced to the Kaiser. What was there a particular... Why was there a particular fear of sort of Eastern religions or that that that, that Eastern, um, uh, yeah, like Eastern philosophy in Germany at the time? I'm not actually sure. I mean, there was a particular fear of almost everything. This is a time when, uh, right? Like, this is a time when there's an enormous amount of um, fear of invasion at the peak of the European imperialist system. Ironically, this is a time when. China is, you know, less able to threaten Europe than any other time, maybe in history. Mm. Um, so it's it's very odd. Um, now, the historian Gregory Blue has argued that it was actually Eulenburg who first exposed the Kaiser to Gobineau's writings, um, and he was also an anti-Semite in 1895, according to the historian Norman Domeyer. He had this to say in a letter to the Kaiser about Jews that he saw attending a concert in Vienna. These are different ways that he described Jews. Quote, drooping and enormously crooked noses, quote, bandy knees, quote, noses like tapers, quote, fat lips, quote, prominent cheekbones, quote, eyes like eye teeth like a walrus's, quote, slanted eyes like slits, quote, gaping jaws with hollow teeth, and quote, exposed and sweaty shoulders. Charming, charming, charming guy. Just great, isn't it? Um, now, the Kaiser himself was proving to be a bit of a disappointment. Despite striking out on a host of colonial adventures, and despite the growing military and economic might of the reunified Germany, he was consistently seen internationally and at the country's highest levels as the weakest link. And he managed to leave a trail of ill will in his wake, an article by the historian Miranda Carter in The New Yorker called, What Happens When a Bad-Tempered, Distractable Doofus Runs an Empire, lays out some of his greatest hits. Despite being convinced that his greatest gift was personal diplomacy, she writes, quote, these meetings rarely went well. The Kaiser viewed other people in instrumental terms, was a compulsive liar, and seemed to have a limited understanding of cause and effect. A particular specialty, she writes, was insulting other monarchs. He called the diminutive King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy the dwarf in front of the king's entourage. He called Prince Ferdinand of Bulgaria Fernando Naso on account of his beaky nose and spread rumors that he was a hermaphrodite. Since Wilhelm was notably indiscreet, people always knew what he was saying behind their backs. He judged wrongly that Russia was so desperate for German goodwill that he could keep it dangling. Instead, Russia immediately made an alliance with Germany's western neighbor and enemy, France. Wilhelm decided he would charm and manipulate Tsar Nicholas II into abandoning the alliance, but this failed when he called Tsar Nicholas, quote, a ninny and a whimperer fit only to grow turnips. Um, and you're telling me this person's related to Prince Philip, right? I'm telling you, this person is related to Prince Philip. You'll never believe. Um, may he rest in the flames of hell. Uh, he cultivated a special severe facial expression for public occasions and photographs, Carter writes, um, and also a heavily waxed upward turned mustache that was so famous it had its own name, which was Er ist erreicht, which means it is accomplished. A former mentor wrote, and this is also quoted by Carter in her article, 
he reads very little apart from newspaper cuttings, hardly writes anything apart from marginalia on reports, and considers those talks best which are quickly over and done with. And Carter describes a court in which the upper echelons of German government was a free-for-all with officials wrangling against one another. She quotes a German diplomat as saying, the most contradictory opinions are now urged at high at all highest levels. She says that Wilhelm would change his position every five minutes, deferring to the last person he'd spoken to or cutting that he had read, and that his staff and ministers resorted to manipulation, distraction, and flattery to manage him. Carter quotes Eulenberg as saying, quote, in order to get him to, an accept, to accept an idea, you must act as if the idea were his. Don't forget the sugar. He sounds a bit like Trump, maybe. That's the explicit uh, comparison that Carter is making, I think, of both Trump and Boris Johnson, actually. Yeah. So this is precisely the kind of environment that is almost designed in a laboratory to create scandal, right? You have contradictory conflicting people, a lot of resentment, um, very unclear divisions of power, and everything is very personalized. Yeah. So as early as 1902, rumors were beginning to spread about homosexuality in the Liebenberg Roundtable. Despite the fact that Eulenberg was married and had five children, it was believed that he had left his post at the German embassy in 1902 due to blackmail, fearful that his homosexual dalliances would be exposed. In his chapter on the Eulenburg scandals in Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity, the historian Robert Beachy writes, quote, Members of the Liebenberg Roundtable, including Eulenburg, wrote poetry and composed songs. They were described as spiritualists and known to conduct seances. It also became clear that they cultivated a cult of neo-romantic male friendship, and their correspondence was filled with seemly homoerotic attestations of friendship. Eulenburg himself was often addressed as Philly or Philine, while Moltke, Kuno von Moltke, another member of the circle, enjoyed the nickname Tutu. And most damaging was the pet name Liebchen, or Darling, which they used for the Kaiser himself. Wow. So now, actually, uh, we have a piece of audio for all of you, because um, all of this was recorded very, very early. Um, one of the things, uh, when I mentioned that they wrote songs, Philip, uh, Prince of Eulenburg, wrote a cycle of songs called the Rosenlieder, the Rose songs, um, June Rose, Briar Rose, Crimson Rose, Lake Rose, and Roses White and Red. And so we're going to hear a little bit of June Rose uh, sung by the tenor Marcel Wittrich with orchestra and organ conducted by Bruno Seidler-Winkler. <laughs> So as you can hear, that's pretty damn gay. So the bulk of the scandal itself took place between 1906 and 1909 and consisted of a series of spectacular trials. Quote, what was novel about the scandal, writes the historian Norman Domeyer, was the power with which gender categorizations flooded the public and political spheres, prompting a new and noteworthy dialogue on masculinity as it related to national character. Now, people who listen to this show probably won't be surprised to hear us argue that masculinity has long been connected to the state. The concept of the bourgeois white state as itself a kind of impenetrable masculine body ruled by the head that governs passions, as opposed to the pr supposedly primitive colonized people who are feminized and susceptible to passion and reaction, has been a crucial feature of evolving European political thought. If the state itself was a body, 
than at, with the Kaiser at its helm. Um, the presence of homosexuality in that body of the state at its highest levels presented an enormous threat to that body's integrity, much in the same way that taking it up the ass threatens the bodily integrity of the heterosexual man. This this theory, this this or this sort of slur has been around since the days of Julius Caesar. The same the same was said of Caesar that he was somehow not fit to rule because, or that, that there was like drawn this wider metaphor that because because he was um, the passive recipient um, or the, the recipient uh, in anal sex that it was somehow a threat to the the body of um, of of the, the of the Roman Empire. Absolutely. And I don't think I need to tell listeners of this particular show that violating the integrity of the masculine body makes for a particularly enjoyable Saturday night and is a lot of more fun than the alternative. But jokes aside, this vision of masculinity and statecraft is deadly serious. Think of the sculpted muscular bodies in Arno Breaker's depictions of the perfect fascist soldier, or closer to home here at Bad Gaze, the idea that certain forms of male-male sexual contact could actually enhance masculinity through the increased distance from the misogynistically denigrated feminine. So if one of the big ideological tendrils wrapping around the Eulenburg scandals was this relationship between masculinity and the state, the other was the way in which emerging scientific and political movements, specifically the left liberal sexology embodied by Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, which sought to move from an understanding of same-sex sexual contact rooted in prejudice and bias to one rooted in scientific understanding and compassion, was intent on using, and able to use, the presence of the scandal in the courts and papers to establish legitimacy and visibility for itself, and in so doing to help ground Germany as the primary site in the evolving movements for homosexual emancipation. As Oscar Wilde once infamously said, the only thing worse in life than being talked about is not being talked about. (laughs) Through the Eulenburg scandals and trials, definitions of homosexual and discussions of what homosexuality was and meant suddenly dominated national discourse. Experts were needed at trials to testify as to what this homosexuality thing actually was, and one of them, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, ended up making a career off it, while another, the masculinist Adolf Brunn, inserted himself into the conversation in a way that ended up sending him to jail. The scandal itself was kicked off when Friedrich von Holstein, who was a former member of the Liebenbergs who had fallen out with Eulenburg several years before, contacted the journalist Maximilian Harden and gave him a hot tip. Eulenburg, along with several others in his circle, were homosexual. By the time the scandal itself broke, Eulenburg had actually largely stepped back from actively advising government decision-making. Once Bülow himself was made chancellor, Eulenburg felt free to step back from the statecraft he so hated and devote himself to socializing at Liebenberg with other, um, let's say, uh, Wagnerites and spiritualists. Are you prone to Wagner, as they used to say? Or as Leonard Bernstein said of Wagner, I hate him, but I hate him on my knees. A comment with actually endless psychosexual implications. Um, in, in November of 1906, Hardin published two articles naming Eulenberg, his friend Kuno von Moltke, and the rest of the Liebenberg circle as homosexuals. These articles were published in Die Zukunft, or The Future, a weekly left liberal social democratic news magazine that had become publication in 1892. Hardin, its editor, was born Jewish in 1861 and converted later in life to Protestantism. He had a high-minded Baroque style. His friend Karl Krauss once joked about articles being translated into German from Hardin. If Hardin began as a social democrat, then by the middle of the First World War, he demanded that Germany annex most of Europe. 
for me, an interesting point of comparison for this left but moving right figure who wrote in this sort of high-minded register would be Christopher Hitchens. Mm, interesting, yeah. So if the November 1906 articles were, in the words of the historian Robert Beachy, cryptic and went largely unnoticed, they certainly did not go unnoticed by the savvy, chattering classes, Die Zukunft being the kind of paper that people who wanted to feel or needed to remain very well informed indeed would read. You know, this is a sort of insider's paper. So rumors began to circulate, but despite these rumors, Eulenburg was granted the Order of the Black Eagle by the Kaiser in January of 1907 and attended the lavish ceremony. If you want to prove you're not gay, you wear a lot of ribbons and surround yourself with soldiers, I guess. Um, so um, finally, in April, uh, Hardin published another series of articles which associated Eulenburg's homosexuality with treason and which could therefore no longer be ignored. That May, the crown prince brought the offending articles to the Kaiser's attention, and Eulenburg and von Moltke were swiftly removed from their formal posts and ordered to explain themselves. Now, if you were a Prussian noble and you were accused in print, you had two choices for fighting that accusation. One would be dueling, and the second would be a legal challenge. Eulenburg decided it was better to go the legal route, and so he decided to have himself investigated for violations of paragraph 175, Germany's sodomy law, the court of his own estate, which he controlled. He there was found innocent or sort of found himself innocent. And that meant that he then had the factual basis for a libel suit against Harden. Moltke went the dual route and only sued after the dual challenge was declined. Interesting. <clears throat> it's interesting how in this sort of period, how many men end up sort of screwing themselves over by by deciding to solve this issue in court. Like, this is exactly what happened to Wilde. He could have just let it drop. But his, we'll get there. Yeah. It, it, and and it, there's a difference here, which we'll get to. Um, so now we face the same question that the German courts faced. Were these men actually homosexuals, and was there some kind of gay spiritualist cult influencing Wilhelm II that maybe even included him? A few disclaimers before we start this part of the investigation. Of course, there's the normal one about gay being a different kind of thing at different times and places, although that's tempered here a bit by the fact that we're literally examining one of the times and places that produced what gay means now. And additionally, the fact that Wilhelm's bad rule, a rule which we'll recall led to the First World War, a revolution and the end of the monarchy, led conservatives to seek explanations, including ideas about disability and homosexuality, as demonstrating why he wasn't man enough to lead Germany well. Um, but now that all that high-minded historicizing is out of the way, let's get down to the juicy bits. Um, are you ready, Hugh? I am ready. Hit me. So, uh, Rell describes that the Kaiser seems to have ignored his wife after being named to the throne and enjoyed surrounding himself with strapping young soldiers, all of whom always looked just fantastic. Uh, quote, It is indeed disturbing to reflect, Rell writes, that the generals who took Germany and Europe into the Armageddon of 1914 not infrequently owed their career to the Kaiser's admiration for their height and good looks and their splendid uniforms. <laughs> Rell quotes Wilhelm as writing to Eulenburg, I never feel happy, really happy in Berlin. Only Potsdam is my Eldorado, where one feels free with the beautiful nature around you and soldiers as much as you like. For I love my dear regiment very much, those nice young men in it. Could this not also, though, be to some extent like both a combination of the um, just sort of eugenics position that they they held and also uh, the, a sort of more general heterosexual masculinism? 
that they just they preferred the company of men because they were sort of absolutely absolutely but let me hit you with the next one um here's an 1892 letter uh from the court official georg von hulsen who describes a little performance that was put on for the kaiser's behalf quote you must be paraded by me as a circus poodle that will be a hit like nothing else just think behind shaved tights in front long bangs out of black or white wool at the back a genuine poodle tail a marked rectal opening and when you beg in front a fig leaf just think how wonderful when you bark, howl to music, shoot off a pistol, or do other tricks. It is simply splendid. In my mind's eye, I can already see His Majesty laughing with us. I am applying myself with real relish to this work in order to forget that my beloved sister, the dearest thing I have on earth, is at this moment dying in Breslau. Okay, I withdraw my previous comment in defense of his heterosexuality. Now, Eulenburg was... In fact, seemingly one of the only people who was not required to cross-dress in front of the emperor. Um, but as you mentioned, it could be that this is the kind of drag that's more like panto drag than anything else, eating schoolboy stuff, which might occur and be accompanied by general genital contact, but that actually has more to do with maintaining the borders of heteromasculinity than with bringing them down in any kind of permanent way. Both Eulenberg and von Moltke seem to have been uh, genuinely bisexual, but with a strong uh, romantic commitment towards the company of men. Yeah. But as you mentioned earlier, Hugh, by, by suing for libel, both men had just committed the same mistake as Oscar Wilde. They sued someone for libel to, for calling them sodomites when they were, in fact, sodomites. And like Wilde, the scandal surrounding their sexuality would become enormously important for burgeoning homosexual movements. But unlike Wilde, these two men possessed enough clout to make their trials complex and lasting affairs, and neither would ever end up being sentenced for violations of paragraph 175. So the first trial, the libel suit by Kuno von Moltke against Harden, began in October of 1907 and was one of the major news events of the year. Robert Beachy quotes a newspaper saying, quote, Morning trial Moltke Harden, evening Caruso, and everyone expects a celebration. The demand for tickets for the drama in Moabit is no less than that for the first appearance of the King of Tenors in the Berlin Opera House. The trial ended up dramatizing the acts versus identity shift that was then emerging in how Europeans thought about homosexuality. To recap that shift, one described memorably in the work of Michel Foucault, if pre-1870s people tended to think of homosexual acts as individual criminal or religious abominations, post-1870s people, via the new discourses of sexology, began to conceive of a homosexual identity, of a type or species of person who committed such acts. Von Moltke's side of the case hinged on the act's definition, with his lawyers attempting to prove that Hardin had no specific knowledge of Moltke committing any homosexual acts. Hardin's lawyers, on the other hand, as Robert Beachy argued, focused on the species of the homosexual. Quote, I never asserted that Count Moltke was guilty of any punishable acts, Hardin said on the stand. I merely intend to prove that the general belongs to a circle of friends in which the different stages of homosexuality are represented, end quote. But how then would he be convicted? You can't convict someone from for being a bit gay. Like it, it's, it's based not that around he's convicting someone. Acts. But the the trial is not to convict Moltke. The trial is whether Harden is going to be convicted of libel. Ah, of course. Okay, yeah. So towards that end, Harden's lawyers called to the stand Moltke's ex-wife, Lily von Elba, who testified that the marriage was undermined by Moltke's friendship with Eulenberg when Eulenberg smuggled Moltke off to join him at his post in Vienna and rather pointedly tried to exclude Lily from the arrangement. Lily testified that Moltke told her, quote, I don't find you revolting as a human, but rather as a woman. Um, another close, 
Oh, yes. Another close confidant testified that Moltke had once found a used handkerchief left by Eulenberg and sniffed and kissed it, saying, My soul, my love. Oh, gee. Okay, so yeah. Shut and close case, surely. Yes. Um, whether the relationship between Moltke and Eulenberg was ever sexual remained moot, writes Bichy. What Harden hoped to establish instead was Moltke's inborn sexual orientation. And so to do this, he needed to get an expert witness. And the expert witness that was called to the stand was a man named Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who took the stand to provide expert testimony. And he gave days of testimony, which was then reported on in the daily newspapers. And this provided a key platform for Hirschfeld to propagate both his sexological principles and his own image as a public commenter on homosexuality. Hirschfeld said on the stand, quote, homosexual men are usually characterized by a higher sensibility and impressibility. Emotions dominate their life, a strong artistic sense, especially when it comes to music, often an inclination to mysticism, combined with all kinds of feminine affinities and passions in the good and bad sense of the word. This blend does not make the homosexual inferior. He is not like the heterosexual, but he is of the same value. Hmm. Of Moltke, he testified, quote, his whole personality is extraordinarily enthusiastic and sentimental. All the aspects described by his former wife prove an aberrance from masculine normality. His conclusion, quote, homosexual love, as proven by this case, can be as pure as normal love. So the court decision was carried out in favor of Hardin, with the judge declaring that Moltke, quote, has an aversion to the female sex, an attraction to the male sex, and certain feminine features. These are all characteristics of homosexuality. It must be emphasized here that no one has claimed that Count Moltke is guilty of any homosexual activity. It is viewed only as established that he is homosexual and has not been able to disguise his orientation in the presence of others. So this is like an early ruling sort of in law that there is such a thing as a homosexual divergent. One of the first, one of the first, if not the first. Um, This led the Kaiser to suffer a nervous breakdown. And the Prussian Attorney General declared the case a matter of public interest and announced that the state would support an appeal in favor of Moltke against Hardin. Because if you want to prove that the state is not being run by a secret gay cabal, then what you do when someone gets, when someone loses their libel trial for being called a homosexual is intervene with the state Attorney General. Um, now, as all this is going on, there's another gay activist who's getting a little bit jealous of all the attention that was coming to Hirschfeld through the trials. Adolf Brand was a firebrand who came down on the masculinist expressionist side of the gay divide, as opposed to Hirschfeld's scientific humanitarian gender inversion-based side. He was horrified that so much media attention was suddenly focusing on Hirschfeld's vision of a homosexuality that was rooted in egalitarianism and focused on gender inversion where Brandt believed that homosexuality, while also inborn, was the expression of a masculine drive. And Hirschfeld had quarreled before over using outing as a tactic. Brandt was always more eager to use the tactic and felt cheated by Hirschfeld's sudden celebrity. And so he decided to demand that the tactic of outing be used against all prominent homosexuals and not just a chosen few. And so he published articles in the journal called Der Eigene, which asserted homosexual behavior by the Chancellor von Bülow, who by now was a political opponent of Eulenberg and Moltke's, and was immediately sued for libel. At the trial, Brand took the stand to say, quote, I have described the Reichskanzler as homosexual in my article, but in doing so, I have not reproached him. Since I strive for the elimination of paragraph 175 and the social rebirth of friend love, 
The last thing I wanted to do was to insult Prince Bulow. Brand was in contrast found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in jail. He would blame Hirschfeld, who took the stand in this trial, to attest that he had not heard any rumors about Bulow's homosexuality. <laughs> wow. Another surprising witness was the Prince Eulenburg himself, who took the stand to swear that Bulow, his enemy, was innocent, and who issued on the stand a passionate defense of clean heterosexual male friendship against what he saw as Hirschfeld's dirty mind. Quote, all the fine nuances that he has constructed in his system of sexuality result ultimately in the reality that no person can any longer feel secure not to be viewed as a homosexual. I have been an enthusiastic friend in my youth and am proud of having had such good friends. Had I known that after 30 years a man would come forward and develop such a system according to which such potential filth and any friendship lurked, I would have forsaken the search for friends. Interesting. So we can add to, are you prone to Wagner? Have you been an enthusiastic friend in your youth? Um, <laughs> now, the, the problem with this testimony from a legal point of view is that it contained a categorical denial of ever having participated in any same-sex activity, which meant that the formerly settled legal question of whether Eulenburg was guilty of violating paragraph 175, settled by the responsible court at his private estate, was suddenly open again. If Eulenburg could be found to have violated paragraph 175 and engaged in same-sex conduct, he could be found guilty of perjury, and his libel case could be thrown out. Ah, okay. So, yeah. It's a bit more complicated even than a wild trial. Oh, yeah. There's multiple rounds. So, while lawyers sought evidence, the retrial of the Moltke-Harden case took place. In this trial, Moltke was successfully able to depict his ex-wife as a crazy hysteric, and Hirschfeld was persuaded to withdraw his diagnosis of unconscious homosexuality. Um, another notable thing that happened at this trial was that Eulenburg was called to the stand and once again uh, swore under oath that he had never engaged in any homosexual practices. Uh, he was specifically asked if this included mutual masturbation and apparently broke down on the stand, but then <laughs> swore under oath that he had never engaged in any homosexual practices. <laughs> this convincing testimony. Very convincing testimony. Now, at this time, Hardin was convicted, and he was sentenced to four months and immediately appealed. Now, at this point, the Kaiser, always a great political genius, began to prepare for the reintroduction of Moltke and Eulenburg into public life, but investigations relating to Moltke's military service opened up a broader investigation into homosexual sexual assault in the Prussian military, and there was then a very public... Uh, homosexual rape trial against two ranking officers in which those officers were convicted, stripped of their titles and suspended from service. And this was also all over the papers. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So while all of that was going on, Hardin's lawyers hired private investigators to find people who would testify that they had had sex with Eulenburg. And they discovered their star witness, a Bavarian fisherman named George Rydel, who had served as Eulenburg's valet for five years and was willing to testify to homosexual activity between them because the statute of limitations on their paragraph 175 violations had expired by this point. So Hardin engineered a trial by which a Munich-based publisher would allege that Eulenburg had bribed Hardin to suppress Rydell's story, and then Hardin would sue that publisher for libel. And the reason that all of this happened is that this meant the trial would take place in Munich, which had a judiciary system that was farther away from Prussian imperial control. Hmm. And then at this trial, Hardin would have the opportunity to introduce this evidence against Eulenburg. So this trial was successful. And in April 1908, the court in Munich certified that Eulenburg had indeed committed homosexual activity, which then opened up a Prussian legal investigation into him for perjury at the previous trials. 
So this, so this, this like libel case was kind of confected between the two publishers in order to get their day in court. Confected between two publishers in order to get their day in court, so they could get a court somewhere to certify that Eulenberg was homosexual, so that they could then save themselves from the libel case in Prussia. Yeah. And this for Harden, by the way, is a real crusade, as you can see. I mean, this wasn't just like, oh, this is some fun gossip, and I'll publish it. But Harden was really convinced that the presence of this in the, at the highest levels of the court was really dangerous. So in May 1908, the Berlin State Court began to investigate Eulenberg and called Riedel and other witnesses from the Munich trial. Eulenberg was deemed a flight risk and arrested and had to be imprisoned in the Charité Hospital because his health was also failing. Upon his arrest, he had to give back all of his honors. And a search of Eulenberg's estate re revealed many books that were published by Hirschfeld's Scientific Humanitarian Committee. Eulenberg's perjury trial began that June, and at it, one piece of particularly damning evidence was a letter from Eulenberg to George Kistler, in which he admitted to having had sex with Rydell and tried to get Kistler to help him shush Rydell up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Various men in the Berlin trial attested to having been propositioned by Eulenberg, and almost all of those men were working class. This fit a pattern in which working class younger men would have sex with older upper class men a phenomenon which also led to a significant amount of blackmail and in which class dynamics were, of course, always present. If upper-class men could use their status to conceal their dalliances, then lower-class men sometimes became desperate enough to threaten blackmail. Presented with a parade of accusers, Eulenberg dramatically fainted in the courtroom mid-July and doctors ruled him too sick to be tried. So the trial was first continued in his hospital room before being postponed indefinitely, and a final Moltke-hardened scandal was settled due to intervention by industrialists who just wanted it all to go away. Robert Beachy, whose account of these trials we've been citing and quoting from throughout this episode, discusses both domestic and foreign effects from these trials. Domestically, the position of Hirschfeld as a scientific expert for the liberalization of sexual laws was strengthened, and paradoxically, homosexual groups gained recognition from the trials. After all, we're talking about a moment of the formation of the homosexual as an identity category. Plenty of people who had moved to cities and suddenly had structured leisure time and some degree of urban privacy and anonymity in which to convert their desires into a way of living, and that's John D'Amelio's famous argument in Capitalism and Gay Identity, could read about homosexuality for the first time in stories about this case, and through those articles could find their way to homosexual groups and to a homosexual identity. It was also a global and European effect in which especially French journalists who were still horrified at Prussian victory in 1870 wrote gleefully of the supposed German virtues and vices. Norbert Domeyer even proposes that it was possible that the sense of violation of the national body through these allegations of homosexuality may have contributed to the Kaiser's willingness to prove his masculinity through aggressive action in the lead to World War I. Oh, wow. Okay. They think that that's, I mean, that's very strong. It's very strong, and I, I mean, it's not. It, it, it's a. It proposes that it is possible and was a factor. It's not saying that this caused World War One, but that this may yeah. have been. These may have been anxieties circulating in the people who were making these decisions. Yeah. So a final Eulenberg trial was conducted in the summer of 1909, and at this one, too, Eulenberg collapsed. And every year from 1909 until his death in 1920, Eulenberg was examined by court doctors who repeatedly ruled him too sick to stand trial. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gays. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgayspod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and t-shirts. 
Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, now, every episode, we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that some Romans worshipped a cult of Fashionus, a deity depicted as a disembodied erect penis with wings? Bitch, me too, the fuck? For the full story... Pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgayspod.com slash book. Thanks, Ben. That's like a fascinating um, a fascinating story about this like key moment in the development of a homosexual identity and, and how it sort of uh, played out in the media and came to sort of a public, a public uh, understanding as, as a discourse around homosexuality. Um, I guess my question around it would be to do with how bisexuality was understood within this um, these early concepts of of like inversion, for example, in this, in this um, Hirschfeldian sort of position, and specifically at the trial. How did did they use his marriage and kids as a defence, and um, how did people conceive within that of someone who m- was maybe bisexual? So the trial was of Moltke, not of Eulenburg, and there was less evidence that Moltke was, there's less evidence of Moltke having sexual romantic relationships with, with women. The theory that Hirschfeld was developing at this time was uh, what he called the sexuelle Zwischenstufen, or the sexual steps in between, according to which there were, it's almost something... Uh, it's almost a sort of precursor to the way that we think about spectrums of sexuality and gender now, in which there are almost infinite combinations of different um, gender and sexual orientation positions. So there certainly is something, uh, there's a, certainly a place for bisexuality in or what we would now call bisexuality in the Hirschfeldian sexological way of thinking. Um, but the allegations that are being made in this case because Eulenberg never quite makes it to trial, tend to be more about homosexuality, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I guess I'm also interested, maybe as a writer, <laughs> about, the, um, about the importance of these journalists and the sort of written, sort of published discourse at the time uh, on how homosexuality in these early days was um, received or perceived by the public, were people? I, I mean, I'm assuming that people were sort of disgusted and horrified in general in the general population. But were people? Was was were these journalists naming something that people would have understood, or to what extent? Or was it that? Or was it that they were sort of like highlighting stuff that you know, like people didn't really have a concept of in general. So this was the first time that the word homosexuality was appearing in the mainstream press. Um, not the first time that you could have found the word homosexuality or discussions of homosexuality in print, right? There were these books uh, that Hirschfeld was publishing uh, and these various petitions um, that Hirschfeld and his and his uh, committee were circulating, all things that were then found at Eulenburg's estate. Um, but in terms of a sort of normal daily newspaper on the front page, 
these are concepts that are being introduced to people for the first time. And in that introduction, of course, being actually defined, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this trial becomes a key reason why um, there's so much homosexual activism in and around Wilhelmine and Weimar Germany. Um, you know, the, the, the um, production of privileged sexological knowledge at this trial and the alliance between, like the way that Hirschfeld is able to use what is sort of a homophobic persecution of Eulenburg and Moltke as a way to propagate himself in the news media um, and the way to get his ideas out there and associate them with this kind of uh, liberal modernizing uh, project embodied by Hardin is really, really important and becomes a, cru a crucial part, I think, of how um, sexological discourses in the Weimar era evolve. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, perhaps fittingly, I think homosexuals have always benefited from the Streisand effect in terms of, yep. um, in terms of the, the, quite often the attempts to, to suppress it and to castigate it in public actually broaden conversation about it and make people realize, you know, like, oh, this thing perhaps applies to me. There's this quite interesting case, um, that I read about of, um, this guy in, uh, in Vietnam, a soldier in Vietnam listening to the forces radio when, um, or reading a forces newspaper, I think Stars and Stripes, uh, when, uh, Stonewall happened and realizing and, say, and thinking like, oh, this is, this is me and these are my people. And when I go back, I'm going to like change my life and join the sort of gay liberation movement. As it Absolutely. Was Absolutely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, well, thanks, Ben. If people want to know more about the Eulenburg affair and, um, and Philip Prince of Eulenburg, uh, what sources do you use for this, uh, for this show? Well, um, there's Robert Beachy's compulsively readable Gay Berlin Birthplace of a Modern Identity, uh, which has a chapter that really goes through all of the trials in detail. And there's also um, a book by Norman Dohmeyer about the trials, um, an article in the journal Central European History called The Homosexual Scare and the Masculinization of German Politics, and a conference paper by Dohmeyer called Scandal in Science, The Power of Sexology and the Eulenburg Affair, and all of those are in the show notes. Um, for a really fascinating novelization of this series of events in this period, uh, Martin Duberman's book, Jews, Queers, Germans, A Novel History, is quite good. Um, the background on the Kaiser's court came from John C.G. Rowe's book, The Kaiser and His Court, Wilhelm II and the Government of Germany. And then uh, there are associated bits of supporting evidence in this from Alex Ross's book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, and Andy Zimmerman's book, Anthropology and Antihumanism in Imperial Europe, Imperial Germany, sorry. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, my name's Hugh Lemmy. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my new newsletter, hugh.substack.com. You've been listening to Bad Gaze. You can find us on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod. And what about you, Ben? And me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. Um, until next week, bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.